this morning, um, we're continuing our series called Living on God's Time. And I need to start by saying that I feel a little bit, uh, I feel a little bit restless in my soul. So I wrote a sermon this week uh, about Solomon, and, uh, and, I, and I believe in it. That's why I wrote it, uh, you know. But then we had uh, these terrible floods last night. And I'm going to just ruin the punchline of the sermon for you now. It's about how, uh, how God's not really interested in our comfort. Uh, and that sounds really tone deaf when people are like taking water out of their basements and having to take carpets to the street and all that different kind of stuff. So I, I don't want to caveat myself to death as a minister. But when I say God's not interested in our comfort, uh, I don't mean that God uh, sends rains into our basements to make us uncomfortable. I'm not saying that God is like uh, in heaven really happy that we're going through like uh, hard things. Somebody's house blew up last night. I mean, that's terrible. That's a terrible thing to have happen. And that, that's not what I have in mind uh, when, I, when I think about these things and, and when I say the things that I'm going to say. And I feel like I have to start that way because I just feel a little bit unsettled. Like, I don't want anybody to hear my words this morning and think that, you know, I'm a monster. <laughs> so that I'm preaching. God doesn't want us to be comfortable on a day where a lot of people really aren't very comfortable. Uh, and uh, so I just want to start by saying that. I'm just going to own that up front. I thought about writing a whole new sermon this morning about Noah, <clears throat> you know, but my wife was like, no, don't do that. So this, this is what it is, but I just have to start kind of by saying that. So like I said, we are in our series, Living on God's Time, and uh, whether you've been here every week of this series or whether this is your first Sunday, my hope really for you this morning is the same, uh, and it's that we would look at the stories of God's people in the Old Testament and, uh, and the story of God as revealed throughout Scripture, and that we would see ourselves in that story, that we would see ourselves through the characters and through the events that happen in Scripture. So way back at the beginning of this series, we talked about how where we come from matters, that, that who we are and who our parents were and who their parents were all has an impact on our present moment. Who we are and where we come from matters. And... Uh, and that's why I think it's important for us to look at the history of God's people. This is our lineage. These are the stories of, of God's people who are our people. We are the people of God today. And so I hope that we would just continue to have a better understanding of who God is and who God has always been as we go through this. So one of the things that has come up over and over and over again throughout these stories, throughout the scriptures that we've looked at, is that um, the characters of the Old Testament are very complex. So my wife and I uh, took a trip last week and we were listening to this podcast called The Bible Binge. And uh, it, it, if you listen to podcasts, maybe you've heard of the podcast and it's the same people. And what they do is they actually, uh, they like review a Bible story as though it's a movie. It's pretty irreverent. So if you don't like irreverence, don't listen to The Bible Binge. Um, they're Christians, so it's okay. Uh, but, it, you know, it's, they kind of take a light, funny take. And they talked about the story of Jacob. And by the end, <laughs> Caleb was looking at me like, what in the world? Why is this story even in the Bible? Jacob was not a good dude, right? Like, he's complex. So God uses Jacob. Uh, but Jacob is not really uh, a moral compass for our lives. Joseph is a pretty important character. But Joseph had some arrogance issues, you know, in his own heart and in his own life. Uh, and Moses was used to save God's people, but Moses was also a pretty flawed guy, a pretty flawed character. And so over and over and over again, we see that the stories and the characters in these stories are very complex. They're not one-dimensional. And 
what we like to do, what I like to do, is I like to scrub up my stories and scrub up my heroes so that they can, they can stand as paragons of virtue and I can look at that character and I can look at that story and say, isn't, isn't that great? It's wonderful. That's the way that things are supposed to be. But the reality is that that's not how these characters were because that's not how we are. That's not how people are. We're all complex. We all have flaws and faults. We all have problems. We all have struggles in our lives. And that's why, ultimately, the stories that we look at in Scripture are not about these individual characters. They are about God. They're about God and God's plans and God's purposes. And we have all these characters who are, who are fundamentally flawed people, and yet God uses them, and yet God's purposes and plans move forward. Sometimes the characters seem to even stand in the way of God's plans, and yet God's plans move forward because these stories are all pointing to one story, and that is the story of God. God's plans and purposes cannot be undone by the activities of imperfect people. Just because Jacob wasn't that great of a guy doesn't mean that God's plans are going to come to a sudden stop. And that's kind of a strange paradox of our faith if we think about it. Because we say God is not controlling. Well, I've said God is not controlling at least. God is not controlling and yet God is in control. So God's not controlling but God is in control. God does not do evil. The, the Bible says God is not the author of evil, and yet God can transform that which is evil into something good. God's plans are not dependent on us, but God uses us in order to accomplish his plans. And over and over and over again in scripture, we see this paradox playing out, that God has plans that cannot be stopped by us, and yet uses us to get his plans done. That God does not control the whole arc of the story, and yet God is always in control of the arc of the story. God returns again and again throughout the Old Testament, moving the story of his people forward. And again and again, his people vacillate from being active participants in the plan of God, actively uh, standing for what God stands for, and standing in the way, being in opposition of the plan. So this morning, uh, our story arc has come to this character named Solomon. And I really think that he exemplifies this duality as much as any other character in the Bible. On the one hand, when I say Solomon, many of you, the first thing you think is, he was wise. Solomon was very wise. This is a good thing. God gave him this wisdom. And so this is what we think of. So on one hand, we have Solomon who is very wise. He leads the people of God into a time of prosperity, and he even builds a temple for God. These all seem like really good things. But on the other hand, Solomon used his wisdom and influence for his personal enrichment. Uh, as we're going to see in a couple of minutes, the temple that he builds seems like maybe it was more for himself than it really was for God. And ultimately, toward the end of his life, Solomon also built up shrines and uh, altars to pagan gods. So he didn't only worship uh, the God of Israel, he also worshiped all of these pagan gods. So at some points in the story, Solomon seems to be a servant of God. While at other points in the story, he seems to be an opponent of God and God's plans. And yet, as we'll see in the story, and as we'll see throughout the rest of this series, God's plans continue 
to press forward and move forward all the time. So we're going to read out of the book of 1 Kings. This is chapter 9. Solomon has just finished building the temple. So for a few chapters, the story has lingered on Solomon's building program. Solomon built a temple, and then he built himself a palace. It should be noted that his palace was bigger than the temple. Okay, this is part of the problem with Solomon. He builds the temple, but he builds himself a nicer house. Okay, so Solomon is just done building the temple. They've had a consecration ceremony for the temple. This is a big deal in Israel. Like, we're sitting here like, whoop-de-doo, right? But like, to them, this is it, man. Like, they've arrived. They have a temple. Like, they have made it. So that's where we are. Chapter 9, verse 1 of 1 Kings. When Solomon had finished building the temple of the Lord and the royal palace and had achieved all he had desired to do, the Lord appeared to him a second time. The first time was when he gave Solomon wisdom. As he had appeared to him at Gibeon, the Lord said to him, I have heard the prayer and plea you have made before me. I have consecrated this temple which you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. As for you, if you walk before me faithfully with integrity of heart and uprightness as David your father did, and do all I command and observe my decrees and laws, I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. As I promised David your father when I said, you shall never fail to have a successor on the throne of Israel. But if you or your descendants turn away from me and do not observe the commands and decrees I have given you and go off to serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land I have given them and will reject this temple I have consecrated for my name. Israel will then become a byword and an object of ridicule among all peoples. This temple will become a heap of rubble. All who pass by it will be appalled and will scoff and say, Why has the Lord done such a thing to this land and to this temple? People will answer, Because they have forsaken the Lord their God, who brought their ancestors out of Egypt and have embraced other gods, worshiping and serving them. That is why the Lord brought all this disaster on them. This is the word of the Lord. So my father-in-law loves the movie A Christmas Story. Have you seen A Christmas Story? Most of you have seen. If you have not seen A Christmas Story, wait till December, flip through your channels for five minutes, and you will find A Christmas Story. It's on constantly throughout the holidays. I know this because every time we're at Kayla's parents' house for the holidays, her dad is watching A Christmas Story. It's incredible. It's incredible how much he loves this movie. And there's this, uh, this the story of this kid named Ralphie. And Ralphie just wants a BB gun, but his mom just keeps telling him, that's right, man. You'll shoot your eye out. Exactly. <clears throat> he wants us to be good. Uh, and so, you know, that's kind of what the story's about. But really, the story is about Ralphie's crazy family, right? Ralphie's got this crazy family. They get, they get all these crazy hijinks. And, uh, and so this is the story of the Christmas story or whatever. And there's a scene in this movie where Ralphie's dad has entered this contest. And then he wins a major award, you guys. He wins the major award. And they bring it to his house in this huge box. Like, it's this huge wooden crate. And he's, it's coming in, and his eyes are, like, huge. He's, bring it in, bring it in. What could it be? And he gets a crowbar, right, to open this wooden crate. And he opens this wooden crate. And I wanted to put a picture up so badly this morning. Uh, I was advised against it. It's kind of PG-13, maybe, for Sunday morning. But it's a, it's a lamp shaped like a woman's leg, okay? 
and it's got like a stocking on it, and it's it, probably not appropriate for church, okay, but it's this lamb, and he is ecstatic. Ralphie's dad is like so pumped up about this. It's a major award, you guys, like he won this like stinking lamp, uh, you know, through this contest, and so he's so excited, and he goes uh, exactly what all of us here would do if we won this gorgeous lamp. He goes to the front window of his house, right? He plugs it in. He sets it right in the middle of the window and turns it on for the whole neighborhood to see. People, as they drive by, stop to stare at this major award, this beautiful, you know, leg lamp. And his wife is, you know, not excited <clears throat> about the leg lamp, if I can be honest. But she figures, you know, it is what it is, man. He won his major award. Well, a little bit later, Ralphie's dad is doing something that makes the mom a little bit unhappy. Uh, he's, you know, he's not really doing, you know, he's not following the rules or whatever. And so she accidentally knocks the lamp onto the floor. It breaks. It's drama. It's wonderful. Check out a Christmas story. Never again in theaters, but all over cable this December, okay? So um, I'm not comparing Solomon's Temple to the leg lamp because I'm sure I could actually get unordained for that. Like they would come and take my credentials, Okay. But I think there's something here, okay? I really do think there's maybe something here. Um, because I, I don't believe that what we see in Scripture is God wanting Solomon to build this temple. I don't think that the, the story that we receive through God's Word tells us that, that God was gung-ho about Solomon's temple. So he's, you know, kind of like the wife and the lamp here, okay? And so God allows... Solomon to build the temple, but I don't think God told Solomon to build the temple, and I don't think God was all that excited about the temple. So God chose to indwell the temple because he loved his people. God chose to put his presence in the temple because he wanted to be among his people, and that's where his people had gathered together. So he put his presence in the temple, but ultimately, as we saw from the passage today, God was willing to destroy the temple because his glory could not be contained in a temple, and he refused to be held hostage in a temple to an idolatrous people. So he says, I have put my presence in this temple. I have consecrated this temple for my name. But if you don't follow my ways, I will not only leave the temple, I will, I will destroy the temple and leave it in shambles. So two weeks ago, Pastor Suzanne spoke about how David wanted to build a temple for God, and this is how God responded to David. So David decided, I'm going to build a temple, and this is what God came and said to David. From the time I rescued the people of Israel from Egypt until now, I have never lived in a temple. I have traveled around living in a tent. In all my traveling with the people of Israel, I never asked any of the leaders that I appointed why they had not built me a temple made of cedar. God is saying, uh, I did not ask for a temple. God was telling David that he could not be contained in a house. God is always ahead of his people. As they left Egypt, God always went in front of them. They carried the tabernacle at the front. The cloud that represented God's glory and God's presence was always at the front of his people. He, he wandered around in a tent because he wanted to always be in front of and with his people. So you've probably heard it said, maybe you've heard it or said it yourself, you can't put God in a box. And that's kind of just a, a fast way of saying this very same thing. 
God's presence and God's purposes cannot be contained or constrained. God alone dictates when and how God moves. God told David not to build a temple because God wasn't interested in being domesticated. A temple says this is where God is. We have put God in this place. God is now contained in this place. And it just so happens that this place is right next door to where the king lives. So there's a, there's a symbolism going on here that God and the king are somehow now in cahoots. And this is not the plan that God ever had for his people. And so this morning in our text, we see that tension in play. God tells Solomon that he has filled the temple with his presence and glory and that he will remain there. But God makes it clear that his presence doesn't mean that Solomon owns or controls him. As much as he would have liked it, Solomon did not have control over God or God's presence. God in his freedom set out the terms of the arrangement. I will dwell in this temple among my people, but the temple can't contain me. And if the people forget, I will leave it in ruin. That's, that's the message that God delivers. And that's the underlying truth that Solomon forgot. That if the people forgot about God, God would leave the temple. Solomon did not take this to heart. Solomon did not remember this. So the story of Solomon plays out over the first 11 chapters of the book of 1 Kings. And in the course of those chapters, the achievements of Solomon are listed out in incredible detail. We hear how much, uh, how much lumber he had, how much gold he had, how many wives he had, how many servants he had. We find out to the very you know, linear foot how big the temple was and how big his palace was. All these achievements are listed for us in detail. The buildings he built the wealth he amassed, the wisdom that he displayed that brought the whole world to Israel. The story goes so far as to say that the prosperity of Solomon was so great that in Israel at that time, silver was as common as rocks. That's what the story tells us. So the, the, the story of Solomon is full of these details. Solomon gained power, fame, and wealth and turned this little group of wilderness wanderers called the Israelites into an economic and military powerhouse. The reign of Solomon, according to 1 Kings, was a time unlike any other in the time of Israel because people came from all over the world to pay tribute to Solomon, to learn from him, and to witness the glory of this nation that just 60 years earlier had never even had a king before. So, so if I'm standing here and I'm looking at all of that, in my mind, I'm thinking, this should make God happy. As I look at the story of Solomon, in my mind, I think this should make God happy. This, this group of one-time slaves had grown up into a powerful nation. This band of wilderness wanderers had found homes and built God a house of his own. This people who had been marked by scarcity had become a people of affluence and excess. Isn't this what a father would want for his children? Isn't this what God would hope for his people? One of the most fun things about working here uh, at the bridge is that I get to be part of a really cool staff. Uh, and the pastoral staff 
uh, here is really incredible, and it's so many different perspectives on things. So when we sit around and talk, and uh, you know, Pastor Josh has a perspective, Pastor Beb has a perspective, uh, you know, even Pastor Gary has a perspective, guys. You might not believe it. Yeah, he does. Um, I have a perspective. It's weird. Uh, and so we, we get all this stuff together in the room, and we, we have these great conversations. But one of the things that can happen is uh, uh, that we can all interpret the same conversation differently. And this is just true of anything. But I had a meeting with Gary and Suzanne, and uh, it was a great meeting. I thought it was fantastic. And we made, I, I was like, we made some decisions, man. Like, we're going to go in this direction. Like, we've got something. Uh, we're on track. We're on target. This is what we're going to do. That's how I left the meeting. Uh, and then a week later, I was in another meeting, and they said, Johnny, could you explain to, you know, this person uh, what we're going to do? And I started by saying, this is exactly what we're going to do. We're going to replace this with that, and we're going to, and they were like, whoa, 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 whoa. We didn't decide that. I was like, we didn't decide that. I'm like, no, we didn't decide that. Well, I had decided. That's not the same thing as we had decided, okay? So I got a little ahead of myself. That happens from time to time. But we can have vastly different interpretations of the same event, right? And I think that's why it's so important that we have a shared interpretation of events, a shared interpretation. When we leave a meeting, we decide, what, what did we decide together, right? What, what did we actually decide? We have to have a shared interpretation of events. And that's what we really need to understand with the story of Solomon, because if I come to the story and I read the story of Solomon, 1 Kings chapter 1 through 11, and I read the story and I don't think about uh, the history of Israel before and I don't think about what's going to happen to Israel next and I'm just coming with my 21st century views and I just read these 11 chapters, I may walk away with a view that Solomon was the bomb, okay? That Solomon has got it figured out. Solomon was the man. We should all want to be like Solomon, okay? But, but... I think if we look at this with a broader view, a view of all of Scripture before and after, we will come to a different conclusion. Here's the thing. Nowhere in the story of Solomon are the things Solomon did named as positive developments. They are named, and we can interpret them as positive developments, but the text doesn't tell us that they are positive developments. Solomon developed a strong military, but throughout the history of Israel before that, God had actually prevented them from having a standing military so that he would be seen as their protector. Solomon built the temple. But if we read scripture uh, leading into the story of Solomon, we see that maybe this isn't really what God intended. Solomon stockpiled wealth and amassed huge, fortune, huge fortunes, but the law of God handed down to Moses actually said a lot more about sharing your resources than it did about hoarding them. Looking forward in Scripture, so that's just looking backwards. If we look forward in Scripture, the words of Jesus also seem to offer a harsh criticism of the reign of Solomon. Whereas Solomon utilized slave labor to build the temple and his palace, Jesus began his ministry with an announcement that he had come to set the captives free. Whereas the story of Solomon is filled with revenge killings, we didn't even get into that, but it's got them all over the place, Jesus taught to forgive 70 times 7. And even the birth of Jesus seems to stand in stark contrast 
to the empire of Solomon. While Solomon built himself an enormous palace to legitimize his kingship, Jesus, the king of the world, was born in a barn, was raised as a refugee, and lived as a pauper. So, certainly God blessed Solomon with great wisdom. And as we saw in our passage today, God drew near to Solomon, even as Solomon built an empire that ultimately God did not desire. Eventually, all the wealth and power that Solomon built in his life uh, insulated him from the presence of God. If you get to the end of the story of Solomon, you see that he's taken all these wives, uh, pagan wives, who turn him to worship of pagan gods. But he has insulated himself with comfort, with, with influence and with power and with money. He's insulated himself from the presence of God because he no longer needs God. When you have everything else, you don't recognize your need for God. That is the inevitable, inevitable result of the lifestyle Solomon lived. When we are living in ultimate comfort, we will no longer be able to hear the voice of God who makes us uncomfortable. So in his book, The Prophetic Imagination, Walter Brueggemann writes about how the words of the Old Testament prophets, who we're going to be getting to in the next couple of weeks, still speak to the church today. And his central argument is that the prophets were speaking against the culture of comfort that was created by Solomon. And he says this, and as I read this, it hit me like a ton of bricks. He says, the contemporary American church is so enculturated to the culture of comfort that it has little power to believe or act. In other words, we, me at least, the people of God, have believed in the same types of lies that Solomon believed. That we should amass wealth and influence and authority and that, that a life of comfort and a life of much and excess is what God wants for us. Uh, and there's, there's preachers who fly around in their private jets even telling this to people. And it sounds really good because then you can have a private jet too. Guys, I would not mind a private jet, okay? But that's just not the story that God tells us. We have believed in our churches uh, this lie to the point that we have actually lost our capacity to follow a God who makes us uncomfortable. Now, um, Walter Brueggemann writes, uh, you know, at like level 500 as far as like, you know, he's pretty fired up. I'm not quite as fired up this morning, okay? Because I've heard your stories, and I know our stories, and I know that we don't all live comfortable, easy lives. That in some ways we do, okay? I didn't get any water in my basement. Uh, I have an insurance policy, so if I did, I wouldn't be that worried about it anyway. I have two cars, right? Like, these are all areas of comfort. But also, we have areas of discomfort. And so there's a balance. There's a balance here. But I think the message is the same, that we have to investigate our lives and ask hard questions about our comfort. Because ultimately, I don't want to be uncomfortable. I, I would very much like to insulate myself from hardship and struggle as much as possible. I'd very much like to be able to control uh, everything about my life and have power over every situation within my life. I'd like to be able to say, I trust God because I don't actually have to trust God with anything, okay? I'd love it if I could just say I trust God and not actually have 
to trust God. Because when you have to trust God, it means that you might be uncomfortable. And that's why I believe this series is important. We're 11 weeks into this, and you, you might be sick of it, okay? If you've been here for all 11 weeks, you might be like, okay, we get it, okay? This is the story of God, living on God's time, we get it. But I really believe this is so important for us because we have to hear these stories and we have to see how God provided for his people over and over again. And that when God's people tried to provide for themselves, it ultimately is not what God wanted. Ultimately, it's what led them down pathways of destructions. And so the point of this story is not to scrub up the character of Solomon and only say good things about him because he was wise and he was a good king, but it's to look at it honestly in the face and say, is this what God wanted? And then to see how what God wanted comes through in the story again and again and again. Because ultimately God is not about comfort, God is about justice. God is about being in community, real community with us, his people. God is about the richest of the rich and the poorest of the poor being equal together in his kingdom. And when we really catch that vision, what we see is that God is about life, our life, the lives of our neighbors, and the life of the world. When we're caught up in comfort, we can be caught up in ourselves. But God has set us apart and called us out, not for ourselves, but for the sake of the world. That's the part of the plan that even Solomon, with all his power and all his wealth, could not stop. We'll see in the next few weeks that things are going to get worse before they get better for Israel. But all along, God is moving his purposes forward. God is moving his plans forward. Even as many reject God and his words, he continues to set aside men and women who carry his plans to the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. And it's those plans that we are receiving still today. Plans that will no doubt put us at odds with the ways that the world tells us to operate and to live. Plans that will push us. Plans that will likely make us uncomfortable. But plans that will lead us into true, abundant life. Life for ourselves, for our neighbors, and for the world. Let's pray together this morning. Father God, we are grateful for these stories in Scripture. God, I'm even grateful that we don't just get to see the highlights, God, that we don't only get delivered scrubbed up, uh, scrubbed up perfect stories of great people that we could never, ever hope to be like, God. I'm, I'm grateful that you gave us these stories full of all the faults and all the flaws, God, so that we could see that you can use the broken and the flawed people just like us, God, and that you choose to move your plans and purposes forward through us, through your people. Holy Spirit, I pray that we would not on our own try to do these things. On our own, God, we're probably going to default to comfort. But I pray that you would empower us to be your people, to catch a vision for your plans for the world, and to live life in abundance for the sake of our neighbor's and the world. God, we love you. Jesus, thank you so much for your gift in this body. We pray this in your name.
Amen.